listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are now continuing with Jesus, the, Mem- the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shoman. Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, I decided to dedicate today's show to St. John the Baptist. Uh, There are two reasons for that, of course. One is that just a few days ago we had the feast of St. John the Baptist, and very exceptionally it was a feast that celebrated his birthday into life on earth as opposed to his birthday into life in heaven. I think you know that saints' days are usually the days that are the anniversaries of the day that they die, because that's their true birth, their birth into eternal life. But John the Baptist actually has two feast days, one that celebrates the day that he was born into eternal life and died in his life on earth. And the other day, which we just had a couple of days ago, is the anniversary of the day that he was born on earth. And I will talk in a few moments about about why he rates those two feast days. But for now, I just want to say that that's one reason for today's show being about John the Baptist. But the other is that, you know, that I consider myself a Jew in the Catholic Church. I may be guilty of a little bit of uh, Jewish identity still lingering in me. And John the Baptist, of course, well, of course, all the characters in the New Testament were Jews. Jesus, Mary, the apostles, and so forth. But John the Baptist was um, not only a Jew, but he was actually, you could see him as the transitional figure between Judaism and Christianity. Because, of course, he was he was the last Jewish prophet announcing the true Jewish Messiah who inaugurated the or or affected the transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church. So he's a pivotal pivotal figure. He's like the pivot point you could imagine between Judaism and Christianity. Although of course in a more fundamental sense Jesus is the is the pivot point. But anyway, uh, early in my conversion to Catholicism, I thought of John the Baptist as um, you know the last hundred percent Jewish saint, so to speak. So anyway, um, so today is going to be about John the Baptist. So I'm just going to launch in. There's another reason why I'm doing what I'm doing today, which is, uh, it may not be of interest to many of you actually, but my first career was a Harvard Business School professor. That's when I was Jewish. And then I had a rather dramatic and miraculous conversion to the Catholic faith at which point I dropped my earlier career and I basically was in no man's land. And then one day, except, I mean, I was, I was very happy because I was in the Catholic church, but I had no, no professional orientation, let's say. And then one day I went to my charismatic prayer group that was led by a very wonderful Mexican charismatic priest. I used to go every Thursday night. And he invited me to give a teaching. And the day that he asked me to give a teaching was the Feast of John the Baptist. So I gave a teaching on John the Baptist. And so that was really my inauguration into my second 
incarnation, so to speak, as a professional Catholic, you could say. Um, and so that also also gives John the Baptist a particularly warm place in my heart. So let me, uh, before I begin per se, what I have in front of me is actually the text I prepared for that first talk I gave 25 years ago or so about John the Baptist, my first uh, Catholic teaching, so to speak. Uh, before I launch into it, let me just say, uh, flesh out what I alluded to at the beginning of the show, which is there are only three Catholic saints, so to speak, only three people on the Catholic calendar who have their birthday celebrated. Those three people are, not surprisingly, Jesus, Christmas, of course, the Blessed Virgin Mary, September 8th is the celebration of her birthday. We also, of course, have the Assumption, which is the celebration of her transition from life on earth into life in heaven, when she was assumed into heaven. And the third person who rates a birthday as a feast day is John the Baptist. Now, probably the primary reason for that is because those are the three people who were born without original sin. Actually, those are the only three people in the history of the world born without original sin, because, of course, Adam and Eve weren't born. And everyone since then has had original sin, except for Jesus and Mary and John the Baptist. Now, why didn't John the Baptist have original sin when he was born? It's because at the time of the visitation, when the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, with Jesus in her womb, visited her cousin Elizabeth with John the Baptist in her womb, when John the Baptist in her womb felt the nearness of the Messiah, Jesus, he leapt for joy in her womb. I think we're all familiar with the Magnificat prayer. And um, the church tradition is that he was um, sanctified at that moment. He was freed from original sin. He was um, uh, drawing a blank on the on the correct technical word, but in any case, it, he was the he was uh, freed from original sin by the approach of Jesus and by his reception of Jesus while still in the womb of Elizabeth. So, of course, when he was born. He was free from original sin. So he's the third birth without original sin in the history of mankind, in the history of the world. So, however, with that, let me see what I should do before I launch into this reading. This is a live call-in show. The number here is 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And you are welcome to call. Again, it's 866-333-MARY. Uh, M-A-R-Y or 866-333-6279, which spells M-A-R-Y, Mary. So it's 866-333-6279. And if you call in, I will uh, interrupt the show, interrupt my talking and uh, take the call to answer any, any question or comment you might have. Although it's always nice when the questions or comments are are related to the subject matter under discussion. So with that uh, introduction, so to speak, I will I will begin the 
pre-prepared talk, so to speak, about John the Baptist. Besides our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the Blessed Virgin Mary, in the entire church calendar, there is only one other person whose birthday is honored by a feast day. And who is that? It is the birth of John the Baptist. Usually saints are celebrated on the day that they die, that is the day of their true birth into heaven. What makes John the Baptist so special, so unique? Well, that's what we're going to explore tonight. In order to understand the meaning of John the Baptist in the history of salvation, it would be helpful to first consider the role played by the Jewish people in salvation prior to the coming of Christ. When Christ came and the Catholic Church was established on Pentecost, Pentecost is usually considered the birthday of the Catholic Church, God gave the fullness of his revelation to man through the person of Jesus, through his teachings, through our union with him in our interior life, and through the grace which flows from the sacraments of the Church, and through the infallible teaching which comes to us through the Church, God has revealed himself to all mankind. This revelation is now available to anyone who wants it by participation in the Catholic Church, which is open to all. But before the Church, before God was born as man in Jesus Christ, it was in the Jewish religion that God revealed himself to man most fully. What was the role of the Jewish religion prior to the coming of Jesus? God had chosen, had singled out, one people, one tribe, out of all of humanity, for his special purpose. This purpose was essentially to prepare for the incarnation, for the coming of the Messiah. This purpose involved five stages, or steps. In chronological order, these were, one, establishing a covenant of love, fidelity, and loyalty with them, so that their hearts would be ready to receive God as man. Two, teaching the Jews about God and his ways and the behavior he required of men. Three, celebrating Christianity and Christ and worshiping him even before he was explicitly made known. Four, preparing a bloodline of such virtue and purity that it would be worthy to provide the womb that God would incarnate into so to speak, uh, this bloodline, so to speak, culminated in our Blessed Virgin Mary, a virgin of such virtue and purity that she was pure enough to be the womb to host the God-man and to give her flesh and her blood to be the flesh and blood of the God-man. And finally, the fifth role was to announce the coming of the Messiah when the time came for his appearance. Those are essentially the five stages, the five steps in the role that the Jews had to play prior to the coming of Christ. Now, each of these purposes of the Jewish people was incarnated in a sense, was represented by a particular individual. Abraham personified the covenant of love and fidelity with God, first by being willing to leave his family and homeland and go to an unknown land, on God's command, and then entrusting that God would fulfill the promise he had made to make of Abraham the father of a great multitude of nations, despite the fact that he had no offspring and that his wife was 90 years old, and finally, and most significantly, 
by Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only much-beloved son to God without hesitation, out of pure faithfulness and obedience, an act that clearly mirrored and prefigured the reciprocated act of God the Father's part when he showed himself willing to sacrifice his only beloved son on Calvary. Of course, Abraham's binding of his son Isaac is uh, described in Genesis 22. He um, led his only beloved son Isaac up the mountain Mount Moriah under God's command with the wood for Isaac's sacrifice on his shoulders. When they reached the top of the mountain, Abraham bound Isaac, his son, to that wood and was prepared to sacrifice him when God intervened and said that God himself would provide the lamb for the sacrifice in the very same place. Now, that Mount Moriah is the very same place as Mount Calvary. Um, it's two names for the same mountain in Jerusalem. And, of course, it was up that very same mountain where, as Abraham placed the wood for his only beloved son Isaac's sacrifice on his shoulders and led him up the mountain, God placed the wood for his only beloved son, Jesus' sacrifice, on his shoulders, the cross, and led him up the very same mountain. And as Abraham bound Isaac to the wood, God had Jesus nailed to the wood, nailed to the cross, and truly sacrificed in the very same place, and hence fulfilling the, his God's prophecy that God himself will provide the lamb for a sacrifice, my son as he did in the very same place. So it's easy to see the, the mirror image of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac in God's sacrifice of Jesus. Um, and it was Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, which was reciprocated, one can say, 2,000 years later with God's sacrifice of his only begotten son in the very same place. So why, why bring this up? Because it is to show that the entire purpose and history of the Jewish people is a kind of recapitulation in advance of the salvation history, which was to come with the Messiah with the coming of Jesus. Um, I'm uh, hesitating here because I want to skip a little bit here. Now, the second role that... Uh, anyway, but that was an illustration, of course, of of the first role of the Jews, which was to basically prepare hearts full enough of love and fidelity and dedication to God to enable the incarnation to take place. The second role the Jews played was that of receiving God's law, his commandments, and being faithful to them. This, this role was personified by Moses, who personally received the law of God, uh, the Torah, the uh, first five books of the Old Testament, as well as the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai. So Moses is the personification of the role the Jews played in being obedient to God and his law. We will see, by the way, the reason I'm going through these roles is we will see that John the Baptist also recapitulated each of these five roles. So the next role that the Jews had to play was the worship of Christ, 
although Christ was hidden in the Old Testament, he was the Messiah to come, and he was being worshipped by the Jews as the Messiah to come. And David, King David, the King David who wrote the Psalms, personified the worship of Christ still hidden in the times of the Old Testament. Uh, many of those Psalms, by the way, are directly reflective of the Messiah who was to come, that is, Jesus, in the specific circumstances of his life and death. For instance, consider Psalm 22. Uh, I think we're very familiar with the verses from it because it's, it is so descriptive of the crucifixion. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is tried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Thou dost lay me into the dust of death. Yea, dogs are around about me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my raiment they cast lots. Of course, we know that that is cited as being fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. And the fact that that the crucifixion of Christ fulfilled that prophecy in Psalm 22 is made explicit in the Gospel according to John. I'll read from chapter 19. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was without seam. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my garments among them, and for my raiment they cast lots. Now the fourth role the Jews played was to prepare for and provide the individual who would be worthy and able to be God's mother. This was, of course, fulfilled by the Blessed Virgin Mary, who became the Ark of the New Covenant, the Theotokos, the God-bearer. And the fifth and final role that the Jews were to play in preparing for the coming of the Messiah was that of when the time came announcing the coming of the Messiah to the world and of preparing that generation to receive him by repenting and purifying their hearts. This role was personified and perfectly completed by John the Baptist, and in doing so he completed the fifth and final step in preparing for the Messiah in bringing the old covenant to a close and initiating the times of the new covenant. This made John the Baptist the turning point, the pivot, so to speak, between the old and the new covenants. As St. Augustine put it in Sermon 293, this is now a quote, quote, John then appears as the boundary between the two testaments, the old and the new. That he is a sort of boundary the Lord himself bears witness when he speaks of, quote, the law and the prophets up until John the Baptist, Luke 16:16. 16, 16. Thus he represents times past and is the herald of the new era to come. As a representative of the past, he was born of aged parents. As a herald of the new era, he is declared to be a prophet while still in his mother's womb. For when yet unborn, he leapt in his mother's womb at the arrival of Blessed Mary. 
In that womb, he had already been designated a prophet, even before he was born. It was revealed that he was to be Christ's precursor before they ever saw one another. Zechariah is silent and loses his voice until John, the precursor of the Lord, is born and restores his voice. The silence of Zechariah is nothing but the age of prophecy lying hidden, obscured, as it were, and concealed before the preaching of Christ. At John's arrival, Zechariah's voice is released, and it becomes clear at the coming of the one who was foretold. I think that's worth going over a little bit. It's very, very beautiful. Um, the church fathers, um, the uh, um, the church fathers had a tendency, a very beautiful, beautiful, beautiful tendency to very clearly see the prefigurement of the ultimate revelation of Christ in the pictures present in the Old Testament to see the uh, mystagogical meaning of the scriptures, the kind of hidden mystical significance in the events and personages of the scriptures. And here we see, uh, I'm just going to repeat this, but it's, it's very beautiful. Um, it, so John the Baptist uh, represents the boundary between the old and the new law as the end of the old law, as the end of the old covenant between God and man, so to speak, as a representative of this past about to be, uh, essentially about to die out, about to be obsoleted um, covenant between God and man, he was born of very aged parents. So he's coming out of something that's, you could say, about to die However, as the herald of the new era, he begins his prophetic mission, so to speak, already in his mother's womb, when he leaps for joy at the coming of Jesus. So you see, you see that coming at the very end, so to speak, of sacramental Judaism, as a representative of the end of sacramental Judaism, or as coming out of the, the, the death of sacramental Judaism, he's coming out of you could say parents that are almost dead. Uh, that's a little bit unkind, but you, you get the picture of very aged parents. And as a representative of the new law about to be announced, he is all, still in the womb when he announces the new law. So anyway, continuing with um, my previously written, um, I don't know what to say, talk, I guess is what it amounts to. John the Baptist actually recapitulated all of these previous roles of the Jewish people in his person. Like Abraham, he was perfectly faithful and obedient to the point of martyrdom. Like Moses, he taught the people what God required of them. Like David, he was a model of praise and worship of our Lord, even dancing for joy in Elizabeth's womb when Mary came with Jesus in her womb. Remember, David danced for joy in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, John the Baptist danced for joy, so to speak, in front of the new Ark of the Covenant, the Blessed Virgin Mary, right? This is such a perfect mirror uh, image. Like Mary, he prepared a body to receive Jesus when he came. In the case of John the Baptist, not a physical body, but the body of John the Baptist's disciples, who then became the disciples of Jesus. But 
first and foremost, John took on in his person the final role for which the Jewish people were singled out, that of announcing the arrival of the Messiah and preparing the way of the Lord. This role of announcing the coming of the Lord is described in the prologue of the Gospel of St. John, who put it thus, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony, to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. That's the role that the Jews were supposed to play, right? To bear witness to the light that was coming into the world so that all might believe through him. And you might be tempted to say, oh, the Jews blew it, right? They didn't even accept Christ. But stop to think a moment. Many of them did accept Christ, and they d did this. They were the ones who bore witness to the light so that all might believe through him. Because all of the apostles were Jews. All of the early Christians were Jews. Almost all of the early Christians were Jews. For the first few decades, most of the, well, I shouldn't, don't know if I can say that, but certainly for the first decade, most of the Christians were Jews. You know, St. Paul was a Jew. St. Peter was a Jew. Uh, all the apostles were Jews. You know, the, the, the um, early disciples who burst forth from Jerusalem and went, you know, uh, seeded the world with the knowledge of the Messiah, they were Jews. So, as John the Baptist came for testimony to bear witness to the light so that all might believe through him, that is what the Jews, the early Jewish Christians were. That was the role of the Jews, actually. Now, of course, it's kind of a shame that it wasn't all of the Jews who did it, but all of the ones who did it were Jews, if you see what I mean. So, they bore witness to the light so that all might believe through them. And they were not the light, but they came to bear witness to the light, because the true light that enlightens every man, in fact, came into the world. So, with that, actually, I'm about halfway through already, the hour that we have for our show. And um, we do usually take a short musical break about halfway through, um, in order to, uh, among other things, uh, in order to allow a interval for people to call in if you have questions or comments. And we're going to do that now. And um, I have a very beautiful Gregorian chant hymn queued up. And um, the words, in case your Latin is a bit rusty, um, the words that are being sung are the words to the Benedictus, the words to the a prayer that burst forth from Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when John the Baptist was born. So before playing the chant of the Benedictus, I, uh, I'll read the words in English so you know what's being sung. And then I will play this um, Gregorian chant, Benedictus. And if you wish to call in with a comment or a question um, during this musical break, I will immediately after the break look to the call board and take your calls and then continue with this celebration of John the Baptist for his recent feast day. So the, the words of the Benedictus, which you're about to hear sung, are the following. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us 
in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him, all the days of our life. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, when the day shall dawn upon us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And with that, let's go to our musical break. Again, the number here, if you wish to call, is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY. Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel, Cuia visitabit et fecit remcionem plebis suhe, Nostri. 
in quibus visitabit nos oriens exalto. surprised if you were disappointed that I'm back on the air rather than just playing more of that beautiful music. That was Harpa Dei and um, that that music was straight from their YouTube channel and it's all free on their YouTube channel and uh, so if if you want more of them it's Harpa Dei, the Harp of God, H-A-R-P-A and then new word D-E-I. But I see that we have a call so uh, perhaps you can put her on or put him on and uh, uh, call her. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, my name is Sydney Neurotic. I'm a caller. I'm calling from South Bend, Indiana. Okay. Did you have a comment or a question? Yes. I think my first question would be like, which of the hundred questions I have to ask you? Okay. <laughs> I I- I should. I don't want to obviously take up your entire show, but I do have to tell you that a couple of weeks ago I took Salvationists from the Jews out of my parish library, and I am completely blown away by it. I just have nothing else. I have been a lector for many, many years, and I love the Old Testament readings and so forth, and the way you put everything together just is rocking my world. That's all I can say. Well, thank you. Um, Good. Um, I'm, I'm all... Also a convert like you, although I'm not a convert from Judaism, uh, I've grown to just a very secular family, sort of nominally Protestant. But um, I had a lot of exposure to Judaism because I went to a big uh, public high school in Denver that was heavily Jewish. And um, so many of my classmates were Jewish. And I've always been had great respect for Judaism. And I've been particularly fascinated by um Conversions from Judaism. Okay, so that's a comment, and yeah, and and Roy, in your book, you said something. So um, even though I hadn't read your book before, I knew of you. I I just hadn't read the book. Um, I have kind of um, I, I I actually called into Catholic Answers one time when Rosalind Moss, who's now Sister Miriam, was on the air, and said to her. You know, I think that most of the uh, Jewish conversions that I listen to seem like they have a profound mystical element. And then in your book, you call it divine intervention. Well, I, I, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I think you had a hundred questions and we haven't even gotten to number one yet. Well, that would be number one. What is this thing about 
the mystical, why does it seem that in so many, I mean, when I hear Protestant ministers who convert on like the journey home, it's almost always because they started reading um, the early church fathers. You know, they're already Christian, but they're convinced that then they become convinced that the Catholic Church is a one true church. But the Jewish conversions have just had, I mean, I've heard stories of like Jews who just walked into a church in New York, you know, and all of a sudden bingo, like they saw okay. the tabernacle. Well, give me a chance to answer, okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, which is, uh, St. Paul says it already. That's a long time ago. He says, Greeks seek wisdom. Greeks refers to non-Jews. It refers to the rest of the empire. That's a second Greeks seek wisdom, but Jews require signs. Um, the thing is that Protestants believe in the New Testament, so it doesn't take too much uh, study of the New Testament to realize they're basically talking about the Catholic Church, like John 6 and and in the letters where St. Paul right. says, if you wonder why all of you, so many people are sick and dying, it's because you receive the body and blood of our Lord unworthily and so forth. And of course, then you have the Apostolic Fathers who learned Christianity at the feet of the Apostles. And of course, they celebrated Mass and they were totally Catholic in, in what they said, including the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. So you're right, it's relatively easy for a Protestant if he's you know, open to it, to to read about the early Church and read the New Testament and, and come to the Catholic Church. But that has no value to a Jew because the, the, a typical Jewish attitude is the New Testament is, is all fiction or most of it's fiction. So there's nothing to be gained from it. And, um, you know, the early church fathers are meaningless to them. So there's really nothing left except signs, so to speak, miracles. Because, uh, you know, there's nothing to study that's going to get them to study their way into the church. So God God wants to bring them into the church. So he's forced to um, to do use extraordinary means. Same thing with Muslims, by the way. Of course, Muslims have more exposure to Jesus because he's in the Quran. Uh, well, his name at least is in the Quran. There are references to a Jesus in the Quran. But uh, most Muslim conversions come about also through mystical experiences or, or dreams or apparitions and so forth. So I think it's because God's in the business of, of calling human souls to him. And uh, he likes to... <laughs> um, he would prefer for the person to have as much participation in the decision as possible. But um, in the case of a Jew or a Muslim, you know, he has to use extraordinary means. So uh, you get one more quick question. Oh, no, it's not quick. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, I, and like, it, it probably is that when you just said that to Jews, a lot of times the New Testament is fiction. Um, I Part of the reason I got on to you, Roy, is because for some reason I was down the, you know, Google rabbit hole and reading an interview with um, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Um, and it was uh, it was an interview in um, a British magazine called Premier Christianity in 2016. Um, and he was actually asked, "What does he think of Jesus?" <laughs> and I it just made me realize, like, whoa, there is a really sharp. I mean, we we have this. Um, my, I think you know we we work really hard to be. What do I want to say? Equitable and friendly between um, Christians and Jews, but 
I, I felt that Rabbi Sachs, as sort of brilliant as he is, really sidestepped the issue. Well, remember what, um, what um, and, I yeah. think it's C.S. Lewis who said, that he's either, he's either liar, lord, or lunatic. There's no other choice. Yeah. I mean, either he's telling the truth, yeah. in which case he's the lord, so any Jew is not going to stay Jewish, they're going to become Christian, or... He right. was crazy and thought he was the Messiah and wasn't, in which case he's a lunatic, or he was, uh, he knew he wasn't the Messiah and he was a liar. So the problem is, by definition, let's take Rabbi Sachs, you bring him up as an example. Um, he's not going to say he's the Lord because then he would have, he would be right. an apostate and he wants to be nice to Christians and he wants to be, you know, remain on good terms. So he's not going to say he's a liar or a lunatic. So he's got to dance fast, you know. Um, yeah, so that's that, that, you're answering that. That's exactly that was exactly my impression because I think like wow, this is such a brilliant man. He's capable, but he was he really did dance around the question. Yeah, he has to. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I see it all the time, uh, you know, in the Ben Shapiro's of the world and everything. Um, I, and and I mean, I think they should just. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. There's another view that's actually. Um, let me finish. I, you, you don't get another question, but I'll finish a little more on this question because we're coming up to the end of the show and I have to terminate. But um, there is another view that's become very popular. That's a little more PC for Jews, which is to say that Jesus knew he wasn't the Messiah. That he never said he was the Messiah. And his followers went overboard and, and claimed he was the Messiah and made him into the Messiah. And those passages in the New Testament where he says he's the Messiah and the Son of God and so forth were added by his um, you know, early disciples who wanted to make him into the Messiah. So that's a little more PC. But I, I have to hang up on you because, because I have to finish the show. But is that okay? Well, thank you, and thank you for your extraordinary Okay, witness. I'll be here next week. You can call again. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, let me go back to John the Baptist, but I am very grateful for that call, and um, I'm grateful for all your calls, but it gives an opportunity to, to go in directions that, um, you know, to kind of flower out in, in additional directions. So anyway, but back to John the Baptist, um, and I want to... I want to, um, I am going to interrupt, I'm going to interrupt my talk a little bit, to preach a little bit, actually. And, um, and if I finish preaching in time, I'll go back to the talk that I developed uh, way back when in the mid-90s. And here's what I want to preach, which is that, which is that John the Baptist, the whole story of John the Baptist is very appropriate to our day, uh, especially this story of how he was martyred. Because what is what are the primary sins, let's say, that surround us today? I would venture to say they are sins against marriage, they're sins against sexual purity, they're adultery, they're fornication. And what keeps the too many Catholics, too many Christians, and even too many leaders in the church quiet about the seriousness of those sins, it's the fear of human respect. They do not want to, it's a little bit like 
actually the, the caller mentioned uh, that, you know, Rabbi Sachs did not want to make himself an enemy of Christians by saying that Jesus, you know, was a liar or a lunatic. And Catholic, even bishops don't want to make enemies of the New York Times or the Boston Globe or so forth by condemning sins against sexual purity, by condemning divorce, by condemning contraception, by condemning fornication, by condemning adultery. You know, how many, well, I'll just give a couple of examples. Um, I, a good friend of mine is a, a parish priest, a pastor, very traditional, very orthodox. And he has a painful situation of preparing couples for marriage, for the sacrament of marriage. Um, and when they apply for the, you know, pre-Cana program, they're sharing an address. They're clearly, you know, living in concubinage, you know, living in a state of fornication as they are preparing for marriage. And um, what his response is allowed to be is actually quite limited by the constraints of the uh, diocesan policy. I'll leave it at that. And um, similarly, I mean, how often do you hear homilies con condemning the use of contraception? Um, because, again, the sort of fear of human respect. Nobody wants to be on the outside. Nobody wants to be, you know, condemned by the world and made fun of and so forth. So let's go back to John the Baptist. Uh, how did he meet his end? Well, uh, Herod um, killed his brother and took his brother's wife as his wife and was guilty of um, not only murder, but was guilty of fornication and then adultery. And then um, when he had John the Baptist imprisoned, he was fond of John the Baptist. He, he liked to hear him speak. Um, and then he had his party. Maybe I should read this rather than, than flying by the seat of my pants. But um, uh, yeah, so I, I'm, let me uh, 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 bear with me and I will, I hope, very quickly uh, pull up the um, pull up the passage and uh, hmm. uh, hmm. that's going to be harder because but um, uh, it's, uh, let's see where it is actually here okay at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants this is John the Baptist he has uh, oh no Hmm. Here it is. Um, Herod, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by, his mo by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Okay, so what do we see here? 
we see that the sins that lay behind the death of John the Baptist were the sexual immorality of Herod, in particular the fornication and adultery, and then his fear of human respect, because he did not want to kill John the Baptist. But as this passage says, the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded to be given. He did not want to be embarrassed in the court of public opinion, so to speak. Um, the um, uh, I'll, I'll read the same account, the same event from that was I read that from the Gospel according to Matthew. I can uh, read it from the Gospel according to Mark, and there's some more details which are. Um, additionally kind of informative so i'll just i'll just read it from mark now uh, for herod had sent and seized john and bound him in prison for the sake of herodias his brother philip's wife because he had married her for john said to herod it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife and herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him but she could not for herod feared john knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe when he heard him, he was much perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, so, so think about this. Herod knew that John was a prophet, knew that he was a righteous and holy man, kept him safe, and liked listening to him. When he heard him, he was much perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. In other words, he couldn't understand all of the wisdom that came from John, but he greatly appreciated listening to him. But then, when the girl danced, um, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will grant it, even to half of my kingdom. And she went out, and she said to her mother, What shall I ask? And the mother replied, The head of John the baptizer. And then she came back and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent a soldier of his guard and gave orders to bring his head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. So we see here in this, in this one is called a pericope, this one incident from the New Testament, we see the sins of our day, the, the cardinal sins, I think, I think the central sins that characterize our society, our culture, and if I dare say it, um, the problems that appear within the church, we see them encapsulated in this one short illustration and all tied around the martyrdom of John the Baptist. So what better, what better saint is there to pray, to pray that the church turn around, that our society turn around, that it turn away from insulting God, away from offending him through sexual impurity, away from offending him through adultery. Remarriage is adultery if, if the, the original marriage took place. Remember, an annulment is not a divorce. An annulment is the certification by the church that there was no marriage. So divorce and remarriage in the absence of an annulment is in fact adultery. We have the sins of adultery, we have the sins of contraception, we have the sins of fornication, and on the part of the church, we have the tremendous weakness of the fear of human respect. 
which paralyzes, which hogties far too many lay Catholics who should be telling the unpleasant truth to their friends and neighbors and to church officials who should be broadcasting it from the rooftops. Because what is our job on earth? It's very simple. We only have two jobs. One is to get to heaven and the other is to get as many other people to heaven as possible. And it is a act of spiritual mercy to reprove the sinner. What greater, what greater act of charity is there than to take somebody who is on the highway to hell and redirect them to the narrow, thorny, but rewarding path to heaven. So with that, I have used up all my time, I hope worth, in a worthwhile manner. And um, uh, I got a little bit hot and heavy there. So let me return to a gentler, sweeter sound. And um, I will close the show by going back to, back to the uh, repeating the beautiful Benedictus that we just heard of 20 minutes ago, celebrating the birth of John the Baptist. And let us all pray to John the Baptist that he might once again make straight the ways of the Lord. Uh, make the you know make the mountains flat, raise the valleys, and make the path to heaven once again be a highway, and not a, a the road less traveled, so to speak. So with that, you've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman. I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. And back to Harpa Day, sing the Benedictus. Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel, Cuia visitabit et fecit remcionem plebis suhe, Locutus espero santorum, cuia seculos sunt profetarum eius. Salutem ex inimicis nostris, et emano omnium qui oderum. Ad facienda misericordiam cum patribus nostris, et memorari testamenti sui sancti. Ius iurandum quotiurabitat Abraham patrem nostrum, Oh.
puer profeta altissimivo caberi. Preivi senimante faciem domini parare via seio. Sientiam salutis plebius, in remisionem peccatorum eorum. Per visera misericordiae Dei nostri, in quibus visitabit nos oriens exaltor. Seco 